Turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, and while you're turning there, let me apologize for sending out an announcement on the covered dish luncheon. I was getting very hungry as I was working on today's lesson, and I started daydreaming about that great lunch that we had last Sunday. So I do apologize for that. I trust that you have a study guide because we're going to be filling in some of the blanks on the questions there. And I hope that the study guide enables you to follow along with the lesson and to prepare for the lesson uh, before you come to church. Now, you know the story here in Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had an unusual dream. And he called for the wise men to interpret the dream, and they couldn't tell him the dream, much less interpret it. So he said, well, we're going to scrap all that lot of wise men and get us some new ones. And he sent out the order to kill all the wise men. But Daniel spoke with discernment and discretion to Arioch, who was the king's bodyguard sent to slay the wise men. And he said, now, cool your jets a little bit here and let's have some time to think about this. And sure enough, in a night vision, God gave Daniel the dream and its interpretation. So he went to the king and he said, King, you have dreamed a dream of a splendid statue. And here is the statue. And then he didn't give him the meaning of everything right there. But we understand by putting the pieces of history together. The statue had a head of gold and that represented Nebuchadnezzar, who was king of Babylon that he thought he had built for himself. And then the statue had a chest and arms of silver, and that represented the Medo-Persian Empire that was coming later. And then the statue had a midsection and thighs of bronze, and that represented Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire. And then the statue had legs of iron and feet mixed with iron and clay. And that represented the Roman Empire that was going to crumble later. Then if you will look in verse 44 of Daniel chapter 2, it says, And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Now, in verse 45, you see that there is a stone out of the mountain not made by hands. And this stone will crush all kingdoms and ideologies that establish those kingdoms. And that stone will become the chief cornerstone on which this kingdom is built. It's Christ in the Old Testament. Now turn to the very back of your Bible to Revelation chapter 20, and look with me at verse 6. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, the attempt to explain those two concepts, the kingdom of God and the reign of Christ, has led Christians to devise systems that would offer a viable explanation. 
We see the premillennial system. We see the postmillennial, the amillennial, and the premillennial camp would be divided into the historic premillennial and the dispensational premillennial. The details of these four systems are beyond the scope of our study for this morning. A lot of people have given their lives to the study of those systems. But I want to make a couple of comments about them as we begin. When I was in seminary, we studied a book entitled The Meaning of the Millennium, Four Views, edited by Robert Klaus. And what Mr. Klaus did was to ask four Bible scholars to each give their perspective on the kingdom of God and Christ's reign, and then the other three to critique what they said. And that's what is in the book. And here is my first observation. I am convinced that there are good men, knowledgeable men, well-educated men and women who are committed to Christ's kingdom and who love God, who are in each of the four camps and who would believe what each one of those would, would believe. And so I would encourage us this morning not to look down on someone who has a different view of eschatology than yours. If you study what they have to say, you might be able to understand why they would believe what they believe, although you disagreed with it. So if someone has a different view than you, know that one day we'll know for sure exactly how everything is going to happen, and that is when it happens. Now, that's not to say we can't be sure of many things, and we'll look at some things this morning. Here's my second observation. Bible prophecy is a very popular subject. With the continual upheaval and threats coming out of the Middle East, volumes are pouring off the shelf every day. The sales of Left the Left Behind series have topped 65 million. And when the books first came out, the first four volumes occupied simultaneously the top four slots on the list of the New York Times bestseller. And seven of them have been the New York Times number one bestseller. This is the best-selling American novel for adults of all times. So there is great interest in Bible prophecy. So here would be my observation. From that, I think we could draw the conclusion that prophecy is much more exciting and enticing than whatever's in second place in Christendom. But today we're going to consider not the prophetic interest in the return of Christ, but the apathetic disinterest in the implications of what Christ returning to this earth will mean for Christians and for non-Christians. The Apostle Peter asked the question, What kind of lives then ought you to live in light of Christ's return? And the answer to that question is what we want to consider this morning. We've come to 11 o'clock on God's clock. And you notice this is a little different format than we have used before, the God's Clock series. And that will be ended uh, next week as we cover 12 o'clock. And then we'll be back to a different format. Now, first we want to look at the, well, 11 o'clock is the return of Christ, and we want to take a look at God and history. 
We heard in first light this morning that God is sovereign over all nations, over all rulers, over everything. History is his story. He puts up one and sets down another, as we will see. Now, no one can thwart God's plan for history, but the exciting thing is you and I may participate with him in what he's doing. As we pray, as we follow the principles he's given us in Scripture, as we evangelize, we can be a part of his great plan. We can help to usher in his kingdom in a sense, but no one can thwart the work of God. We see that in a number of Scripture references, Psalm 119, 90, and 91. Your faithfulness continues throughout all generations. You establish the earth and it endures. Your laws endure to this day, for all things serve you. And then in Proverbs 21, uh, verse 30, There is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. Daniel chapter 2, the chapter from which we were reading. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. And then in Daniel chapter 4, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. And lo and behold, here comes one of the best definitions of God's sovereignty in all the Bible. It's amazing what a change in diet can do for you. Nebuchadnezzar went from caviar to crabgrass and that got his attention. And now, here's what he's going to say shortly after he comes back to his senses. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the people of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does what He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? No one can stay the hand of God. Well, what's God been doing in history? We want to look at the five great acts of God in the history of the world. Now, I thought it would be interesting to see the perspective of the world on that kind of question. So I looked at the top ten list, the ten most important events in history. I was pretty amazed. Number one, signing of the United States Constitution. Well, you can tell who's writing this list. I'm not sure the people in Saudi Arabia would agree with what's on the list. Number two, the world wars. Number three, the assassination of Julius Caesar. Number four, the invention of the printing press. Number five, the invention of the airplane. Then the Declaration of Independence. Then number seven, the invention of gunpowder. If they don't agree with us, we'll blow them all up. Number eight, the discovery of the Western Hemisphere. Coming in at number nine, the death of Jesus. Notice not the death of Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the death of Jesus. And number ten, the death of Muhammad. It's kind of a weak list when you consider everything that's ever happened in the world and the importance of it. Well, we want to start at the beginning, and that is creation. You've got to have creation or 
nothing is going to happen thereafter. And, of course, we believe that God created the heavens and the earth. He commanded, and it stood fast. And we'll be talking about that some in coming months as we look in the book of Genesis. And then the second great event, the act of God, was the flood. Man had sinned, and God wiped out mankind except for faithful Noah and his family. And then... The next event, man got back into sin again, and there was the separation of the language groups at Babel. And all the people who spoke Spanish went over here, and the people who spoke English went over here, and they organized themselves together, and from that we find the nations. And then we have two very important events, the first coming of Christ and then the second coming of Christ. We have everything just about in place, it would appear, for the second coming of Christ. Now, God appointed all of these five acts that he has accomplished, and he foretold these things through promises to the fathers of Israel. Uh, He gave the word to the prophets, and they carried the word to the Jewish people, and many Jewish people were anticipating this Messiah in the days of Christ. There were especially those faithful ones who were looking to God, who could believe God like Anna and Simeon, and they could recognize the baby as the Messiah when he got here. So we want to look at the term in Scripture, the fullness of times or the fullness of time. This is an expression that occurs twice in the New Testament. These two verses encompass the totality of God's redemptive plan in history. And in the fullness of time, and here's what God did. Here's the first fullness of time in Galatians 4.4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son. And this would refer to the period before Christ's first coming, when the angels appeared to the shepherds and shouted, uh, Glory to God in the highest. Events had to take place before Christ could be born. I'm not saying they had to take place. They did take place because God said they had to take place. And as we see what those events were, we see God's sovereign preparation for the coming of Messiah and then the propagation of a new faith. First thing, a long time ago, You see there the Ten Commandments, the law had to be given in order for sin to be exposed. Paul says a lot about that in the New Testament. Then, as was mentioned in first light, Israel had to go into captivity. They had been worshiping idols. God says this is not a good thing, and they had been warned and warned and warned. Israel went into captivity in Assyria. Then, almost 150 years later, Judah went into captivity into Babylon. What is an idol? What does an idol look like? Elijah called the people together in 1 Kings 18, 19. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. And you remember the account of the showdown that they had on Mount Carmel. 
Well, here is Baal, lost uh, his arm there, it seems. There is another Baal figurine, and here are some Canaanite household gods that represent the gods that are going to be worshipped. Later on in Rome, the mystery cults worshipped the emperor and worshipped whatever they wanted to worship, but that brought religious participation down to the masses of people and provided for them an opening as the gospel was coming in. People were originally only people of a certain social status worshipped the Greek gods and participated in religion, but now in the Roman mystery religions, it comes down to everybody. You see here the rabbi. Synagogues needed to be developed in exile and centers for worship, schools, and courts. And a system of thought was taught in the synagogues that was the same system of thought that the Greeks used. It's called antithetical thinking. And it means if something is true, its opposite is false. You can't have something true and false at the same time. The government says we're spending X trillion dollars, but we're saving money. That would be an example of modern thinking, but in antithetical thinking, you can have moral absolutes. You can have the Ten Commandments. You either stole or you didn't steal. So this type of thinking was the system on which things were based and on which the doctrines of God were taught. It was a cause and effect relationship. If you do this, this will be the result. Then we see the completion of the Old Testament. Ezra got everything together. The Old Testament was translated already into the Greek language 150 years before Christ. So anybody that was interested could find a copy of the Septuagint who knew Greek and could read what was going on in the Old Testament, what the prophets had said. And among the Jews, that brought a couple of things. One was revival to the nation of Israel as they were encouraged to see what was happening. Uh, the uh, rabbis always spoke Hebrew, and the ones that knew Hebrew could read Hebrew. But now we have a language that most everyone can read, and some people were reading the Septuagint. John the Baptist ushered in the coming of Christ and his message. And, of course, the Pharisees brought in the Pharisaism that Christ spoke out against. Well, the language there, Koine Greek, had to be developed to provide widespread communication. This was a common Greek dialect developed by Alexander the Great because he wanted to unify his kingdom and it was also a good trade language. And then finally, the Pax Romana, vital for the spread of gospel, the Roman peace. Established peace in the empire for several hundred years from 27 B.C. to 180 A.D. They put down all of the tribal warfare and established law and order. They built a vast network of roads and bridges that missionaries, the Apostle Paul, Silas, and others could use as they went to carry the message of Christ. The Appian Way was a paved road 350 miles long. Roman naval power ruled the seas, eliminated pirates, and facilitated travel and commercial uh, shipping. 
It was interesting, the Romans had a very weak navy, but a powerful army. So they were thinkers. And they said, put the soldiers on the boat, and we'll get this giant plank, and when we engage the enemy, we'll get close enough, send the big plank with a spike in the end of it, slamming down on the enemy ship, and let all the soldiers rush across the gangplank and win the battle for us. And that's exactly what they did. Roman soldiers protected the citizens from rioting and robbery. You remember the guy going from Jerusalem down to Jericho? If he had been traveling on the Ignatian Way, perhaps there would have been some Roman soldiers there to help keep law and order. You remember when Paul uh, was involved in a riot in Jerusalem and they were about to tear him apart when the Roman centurion found out that he was a Roman citizen, he began to take pretty good care of him. So the rule of law and order brought stability to society, and all of that represented the fullness of time, and then Christ came, and all of a sudden this new fulfillment of the Old Testament, the new covenant, came forth and spread all over the world, amazingly, because God had prepared the way. Now, the second use of the fullness of times in Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him, with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. And that refers to the period in which we now live. The fullness of times, the New Testament period, events that have to take place before Christ returns. These are the conditions under which we must live. Now, as you look at it, you might say, oh, well, we're not living under those conditions. Well, praise the Lord. God has been good to us. We have a great spiritual heritage in this land, but many Christians today are living under these conditions. Luke 21.10, Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. That's been going on since the days of Cain and Abel. It's been estimated that 231 million people have been killed or died in thousands of armed conflicts in human history. And that's just an estimation. It could have been millions more than that. Matthew 24, 24, For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. You can think of David Koresh, who claimed to be the Lamb of God, Sun Mung Moon, who was coronated as the Messiah in Washington, D.C., with thousands of people there to serve him. Probably you haven't heard of Sergi Torah, the Viserian Christ from Russia. He was a former policeman. He got himself a robe, let his hair grow out, as many followers now, but not as many as Jose Luis de Jesus Miranda from Puerto Rico. People fight to give him money. He is a multimillionaire with 20 worship centers in the United States. And then Lord Maitreya and his prophet Benjamin Krim, who claimed to be the Christ of all Christ, the Master Christ. It's not unusual to see false Christ. Then Luke 21, 11, 
There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. I was first made aware of this when I was talking with an insurance agent from Alabama after the big tornadoes over there, and he said we're having more tornadoes and more severe tornadoes every year. The number of natural disasters around the world has increased 400% in the past 20 years, according to data from the Red Cross United Nations, Louvain University in Belgium. We're having, we had 500 natural disasters per year versus 120 in the early 1980s. There were 240 weather-related disasters in 2006 compared to only 60 in 1980. Incidents of earthquakes, tsunamis, tornadoes, floods, fires, mudslides, extremes of temperature take the figures right off the charts. Now that's not something to make us fearful. It's just something that the Bible says is going to be before the return of Christ. Then in Matthew 24, 9, and you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. We had missionaries from Elam last week who were talking about some of the persecution in Iran. We don't have a lot of persecution in the United States, but it looks like it could come, it could come quickly as we see people turning against God. I want to remove any mention of God. Matthew 24:12. because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. The love of many will grow cold in some translations. Matthew 24:10. at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate one another. He's telling us this. We don't have to be surprised when it comes. We are surprised, but it's there in the scripture. Luke 21:16. you will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. It doesn't seem possible, but there it is. Matthew 24, 21, for then there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. Great distress. What is the purpose for living under these conditions? Now, God could change those things at any moment. God could prevent those things. But we found this morning in first light that God has a purpose in everything that he does. So what would be the purpose of all of this suffering that people go through before Christ returns? God could just turn a switch and send a worldwide revival. Everybody would turn to him. Christ would come. But he doesn't do it that way. He gives us opportunity to exercise faith. He is patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to redemption. Well, here's an interesting verse, Matthew 24:14. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Here's a simple explanation. When are people most open to the gospel generally? I'd say when they're hurting. When they're hurting, people are open to the gospel. Have you ever shared Christ in the hospital? Do you ever talk to people who really have some trouble in their lives and they know that they have some trouble in their lives? People in prison 
most of them understand we've got some problems here. What is going on? They would be generally more open to the gospel than those who are just enjoying American prosperity. So are you telling me that God would let people suffer pain in order to spread the gospel? That's what I'm saying. Because God would like for people to forego the future pain of eternity in hell, maybe for some pain right now. Well, yeah, but what about us? We're Christians. We're serving the Lord. We don't have to get in on that pain, do we? Because that would be the teaching of some Christian, supposedly Christian teachers. Well, I wonder if they have ever read the book of Acts. Because Scripture shows how this purpose gives meaning to our sufferings. This purpose of spreading the gospel in the midst of our suffering, whatever that suffering may be. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. Under a curse of sin, there will be suffering for everybody, Christians and non-Christians alike. But as Christians, there is a purpose in our suffering. Christ's comfort overflows from our lives to those around us if we have a right response to our suffering. Ephesians 3 and verse 13. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you. Paul speaking here. Which are your glory? Here's an interesting verse. Colossians 1.24 Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, which is the church. Now this is talking about trials in life. This is not referring specifically to death. And it's not talking about salvation. It's talking about service. Christ's death finished the atonement. And we don't have to add anything to that. But if we're going to follow Christ, Christ suffered here on earth, and we're called to be in the fellowship of His suffering, and we will have some suffering too. And I think that Christ in heaven suffers when we suffer. Because He said to the Apostle Paul when he was still Saul on the Damascus Road, Why do you persecute me? Well, if he's feeling persecution, that's not a good feeling. Now, Christ is Christ, and I don't know a lot about that, but I do know that he was called to suffer, and we will be called to suffer. It might be emotional pain. It might be physical pain. Philippians 1, 21 through 24. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me, Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but is necessary for you that I remain in the body. And if he remains in the body, there will be some suffering, including that thorn in the flesh that he asked God to remove, but God did not. Now we know why Jesus said in Matthew 24, 16, 24, If anyone would come after me, 
he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Suffering is not for merit, but for service. And we don't want to be like some in history, in church history, who punish themselves, beat themselves with whips, sit on top of the flagpole, make themselves suffer. There'll be plenty of suffering without having to look for some more. So as we serve Christ, we would expect that we would suffer in various ways. The return of Christ, in the light of His return, how should we live in the midst of suffering and tribulation? Well, one thing I would say before we go through these verses is, if you're not suffering great tribulation right now, then you ought to really rejoice because you would be among few Christians who have ever lived who have just had an easy time of it. Acts three nineteen and 20. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, that He may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Repent. Romans 13, 12 and 13. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently. What does that mean? Well, as we've been studying all through the clock, we have seen admonitions to behave ourselves in a certain way, to put off these things, to put on other things, to have the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, to follow the Beatitudes, to have the First Corinthians 13 chapter of love. Those are the qualities that would define behaving decently. First Peter chapter 4 and verse 7, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded. Think about things. Think about the big picture of things. Think about Christ on the throne governing the nations. Be clear-minded and self-controlled. I know one thing, we'd have a lot less problems in this country, social problems, if people were self-controlled. But we've come to a time where control, self-control is thrown to the winds and indulgence comes in instead. Second Peter 3, 10 through 12, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That's how you can participate with God in what He's doing. Live a holy and godly life. James 5.8 You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Be patient. No matter what's happening today, it's not the time yet, at least until a few minutes from now, maybe this afternoon. And if you're in a difficult situation, you know that God will be working through that. Or else if it's time for you to be out of that situation, He can either pull you out individually or He can send Christ and the problems are over. James 5.9 
Do not grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Now, you might say, hey, you've been standing at the door 2,000 years. It's a long time. Well, in the New Testament, the last days can refer to the time from Christ's first advent to His second advent. So when it says in the last days, that could be any time in that long period. Now, when you get down to the last days of the last days, you better get ready. But the Scripture doesn't tell us when that is. It does tell us of the things that will be happening that we are reviewing now. Do not grumble. We have a lot for which to be grateful. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. Judge nothing. <clears throat> now, that doesn't mean that we are not to judge anything because... We do have to judge some things. We have to judge the teaching that's given. I hope you're judging the teaching that I'm given today. And we have to check it out with Scripture. We have to judge the environment when we send children out somewhere. But I think he's talking about the kind of things that we really can't do anything about. Ecclesiastes 7.13 Consider the work of God, for who can make that straight which He has made crooked? Who can straighten it? A lot of people are trying to straighten things that they can't straighten that only God can straighten. Do you remember Job's friends? Did they give a little judgment on poor Job? Oh, yes. They had it all figured out. Job, your problem is sin. And you just need to repent of your sin and everything will be okay. Or either you just kiss this world goodbye. But in the end, God said, no, you got it wrong. So those things that we wonder about, where here is a good man and he dies young, and here is a wicked man and he lives to be a hundred years old, just living a wicked life up to the end. We don't know why that is. But there is a righteous judge, and everything will be set straight at some time. Maybe not on Sunday afternoon of September the 23rd, but it will be set straight and there will be righteous judgment. 1 Peter 4, 7 and 8, the end of all things is near. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. There's something that we can all do, love each other deeply. And then 1 Peter 4, 7 and 9, the end of all things is near. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has to serve others. And then in Hebrews 10.25, Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Encourage one another. Here's our summary. <clears throat> we are to repent, live decently, clear-minded, self-controlled, live holy lives, be patient, do not grumble, do not judge prematurely, love others, serve others, and encourage others. Now quickly as we draw it to a close here. The goal of God in history according to the Old Testament. Zechariah 14, 6-9 and verse 21. 
On that day there will be no light, no cold or frost. It will be a unique day without daytime or nighttime, a day known to the Lord. When evening comes, there will be light. On that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea, half to the western, in summer and in winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day there will be one Lord and His name the only name. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty. And all who come to sacrifice will take some of the pots and cook in them. And on that day there will be no longer a a Canaanite in the house of the Lord Almighty. Now, one particular system would say, yep, there's going to be a new temple. The sacrifice is going to be reinstated. Another system would say, nope, Christ finished the sacrifice and that's all there is. You can study to see which camp you would want to be in. The goal of history then, according to the New Testament, Revelation 19, 5 through 7. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Bless our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Amen. Here's a little book that's a compilation of Puritan prayers. It has really been an encouragement in my life, the Valley of Vision. And here is one of those prayers... I'm just going to read it. O Son of God and Son of Man, Thou wast incarnate, did suffer, rise, ascend for my sake. Thy departure was not a token of separation, but a pledge of return. The Word, Thy Word, promises, sacraments, show Thy death until Thou come again. This day, that day is no horror for me, but thy death has redeemed me. Thy spirit fills me, thy love animates me, thy word governs me. I have trusted thee, and thou hast not betrayed my trust, waited for thee, and not waited in vain. Thou wilt come to raise my body from the dust and reunite it to my soul by a wonderful work of infinite power and love. Greater than that which bounds the ocean waters, ebbs and flows the tides, keeps the stars in their courses, and gives life to all creatures. This corruptible shall put on incorruption, this mortal immortality, this natural body, spiritual body, this dishonored body, a glorious body, this weak body, a body of power. I triumph now in thy promises as I do in their performance. For thy head, for the head cannot live if the members are dead. Beyond the grave is resurrection, judgment, acquittal, dominion. Every event and circumstance of my life will be dealt with. The sins of my youth, my secret sins, the sins of abusing thee, disobeying thy word, the sins of neglecting ministers' admonitions, the sins of violating my conscience, all will be judged, and after judgment, peace and rest, life and service, 
employment and enjoyment for thine elect. O God, keep me in this faith and ever looking for Christ's return. Amen. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for these amazing promises that you have given us in Scripture. And Lord, we have seen in this book, the Bible, that all of these mighty acts that you have performed in history have taken place. And they took place in the manner in which you reported it. Lord, we would expect the devil to attack the veracity of these accounts that are given in Scripture to attack the whole Bible. But we pray that we might stand firm on the promises, knowing that you are coming again and you're coming to judge the earth. And Lord, we pray that in the meantime, we would live holy and godly lives as we look forward to that great day of the Lord and speed its coming. Lord, I would ask that you would touch the hearts of those here this morning that might not be sure about their standing with you. And I pray that you would cause all of us to think about the life we're living, about the treasure that we are storing up in heaven or failing to store up in heaven, about all things that you have given us in the Scripture, and about the great joy and blessing of giving to others, giving service, giving encouragement, giving resources, giving whatever they may need, and especially giving the gospel. So, Lord, if there's someone here today that doesn't know you, I pray that you would touch their hearts, that this might be the day that they would repent of their sin, commit their lives to you, and accept Jesus as their Savior for all eternity. We thank you for your goodness to us, and we offer these prayers in the mighty name of Christ the Lord. Amen.